Hey everybody, Happy New Year. This is officially the first episode of 2021. Sure, 2020 was weird (laughs) and awful, but it was the year I started this podcast, so I, I mean, there's that at least. If you're new to the show, check out last week's Best Of episode for a quick glimpse into the topics we cover and the approach that we take. To wrap up the year, last month I released a special episode on the psychology of gift giving. We looked at how givers and receivers think about gifts differently, which means the gifts that givers think they should give aren't always the same gifts that receivers wish they would get. And in that episode, we heard from Lara Aknen. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Simon Fraser University. Lara talked about some of the work she's done on gifts that highlight something about the giver versus gifts that highlight something about the recipient. But you also heard her talk a bit about her research on how spending money on other people in general can make you happier than spending the same money on yourself. It's that part that's actually been at the heart of a lot of the work that Lara has done, and it's very cool research. When I was done talking with her for the gifts episode, I realized that there was just way too much good stuff that we talked about that wouldn't fit into that episode. So I wanted to release our conversation in full, in all of its glory, as a standalone. She talks about her research on spending and happiness and how it extends to lots of different people all over the world. We also talk a little bit more about what that research means and how it connects to her gift giving studies. So as we ring in the new year, Let's jump into the whole conversation and maybe get some insights on how to lead a more fulfilling life in 2021. So I was reading the advances chapter that you all put yeah. together. Yeah, that was a labor of love. <laughs> I, I have so much respect for those advances chapters oh. just because they're just so integrative and they require so much, I think, really careful thought and attention. Um, and I honestly, I didn't know all the work that you had done that is all this like developmental and cross-cultural and all this other stuff, which is super cool. So I want to, sure. I definitely want to talk to you about that. Sure. Um, but let me pull up my notes here for a second. So yeah, so you've done some work with gift giving in particular, so we'll talk mm-hmm. about that. But you also obviously have this background in something that is a more general psychological phenomenon that plugs into gift giving so easily, right? Which is pro-social spending. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the grand scheme, you study effects of spending money on other people. So could you just sort of give an overview of like what that research has looked like, what the kind of themes of those findings are, um, and it just sort of kind of where that's taken you up to this point? Sure. So yeah, my general interest is in human prosociality and how that relates to well-being. Uh, for most of my research thus far, I've really focused primarily on to what extent does generosity have a causal impact on well-being. And so as you alluded to, um, a lot of this research has it's been very question-driven because I've been, you know, this work started from where I think is a very reasonable starting place, which was looking in um, in and among university college students. And what we found there was that people who were randomly assigned to do a small kind Indeed, here um, spend as little as five or twenty dollars on themselves or someone else. We're happier at the end of the day when they engaged in this small, generous action, spending on others in in whatever form they they selected um, than people who spent on themselves. And so um, I, we were fascinated by that question, but there were many many alternative explanations. And um, you know, college students in Canada might not be the most representative sample. Um, And for various reasons, we wanted to look beyond. And so I became pretty captivated over the next decade or so, trying to understand whether this might be what we called um, a psychological universal 
um, such that happiness is rewarding for most people on the planet. Um, and so to test this question, I've been conducting studies um, with partners and collaborators in rich and poor countries around the world, with developmental psychologists to look in um, some of our youngest givers, like children under the age of two. Um, we've also been studying this in um, small rural societies in places like where um, very little money is ever present and people give in various and, and different ways. And also uh, recently looking at ex-offenders who, you know, by and large, a lot of their everyday behavior does not reflect um, what we might think of as a lot of generous or kind behavior. Um, and, and so trying to understand if, if in this um, strong test, as you might, as you could consider it, whether giving is also emotionally rewarding there. And so across the board, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, and across the board, what we find is is pr a pretty consistent pattern whereby generosity seems to be emotionally rewarding uh, for most people. So to, to get a little more tangible about some of that, mm -hmm. there's sort of, you've looked in many different places, as you said, for mm -hmm. evidence of this kind of thing. So I thought maybe we could start with sort of like the genesis. As I remember it, there's a pretty like tangible, easy to digest uh, study where you sort of have people do one thing or the other and see what kind of consequence it has. So, so could you walk us through what that initial study was about, how it worked, and what you found? Yeah, so the first study uh, on this topic was part of my master's thesis way back in the day, um, and it was it was one of the, probably one of the most exciting and um, personally rewarding studies I ever got to run, because I got, I, I was a research assistant in part running this project, and we went out in the morning hours on campus, recruited undergraduate students to participate in the study on everyday spending choices, and if they agreed, they uh, were given an envelope with uh, either five or twenty dollars inside and some spending instructions pasted on the front. And these spending instructions asked people to spend the money by 5 p.m. that day. Um, and then depending on their condition assignment, they were given one or two different um, instructions. Uh, those in the personal spending condition were asked to spend the money on themselves, and that could be by way of a bill, expense, or gift for themselves. And those in the pro-social spending condition were asked to spend the money on someone else by 5 p.m., and that could be on a charitable donation or a gift for someone else. And so people went on their merry way, um, spend the money, and we a research assistant who was unaware of how they had how much they had been given or how they had been asked to spend it, called them in the evening hours for a series of questions. And uh, we always started with their emotional well-being and how they felt that day. They People reported their, their happiness. And um, when we analyzed the data later, what we found was those people who were randomly assigned to spend on others were significantly happier, uh, regardless of whether it was 5 or $20. Do you have any idea what they were spending the money on? I do. Uh, so a lot of it was food, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which had to do, I think, with the time, you know, we recruited people in the morning and lunch passed in between. Um, but people were doing it in some, you know, in, in um, although like at a higher level, a lot of it was food and consumption. A, a lot of it had to do with like there, there was some magic in the details, if you will. Um, people who were in the personal spending condition were buying themselves a latte and heading to class. And people who were in the pro-social spending condition were uh, treating friends for lunch, taking friends to coffee. Some people went out of their way and took special bus routes home to bring home like special food for their family because they wanted to, you know, give, give a parent a night off. Um, and so food was probably the highest, um, the most frequent higher order category. Um, but people also bought like some interesting gifts uh, for friends and family. One person bought like a small stuffed stuffy for their younger sibling. Several people made donations. I don't remember the details to exactly where. Um, and in the personal spending condition, I remember people reporting buying earrings or makeup or things like that. So not extraordinary things, but, um, you know, an enough spent in 
qualitatively different ways enough to shape well-being at the end. And it didn't seem to matter what they were spending it on, or I don't know, maybe you didn't dig well, into that. It was quite a small sample uh, at the time. It was, it was 46 people in the final sample. And so um, we did not have enough variation. The group, there were not large enough groups to kind of analyze um, how people were spending their money differently on different items to, to follow suit. Um, but in subsequent studies, we've tried to really clamp down on that because one alternative explanation, as you might imagine, is that when people are in the prosocial spending condition, they're getting a lot more opportunity for either experiential gifts or social connection. Um, and so in subsequent studies, we've really controlled what people can buy. And even still, a lot of um, the, the key findings still emerge. I was, when you were describing the at first, when it's like you w- took your friends out to lunch or you did, it just seems like there was a lot more effort maybe, whereas like I bought a coffee for myself. <clears> you go, well, that's not a really a, a huge thing. But then then you, when it's a donation or I just sort of threw some money at someone else, you go, well, as long as if all of those things are doing it, then it does seem to be barreling down into just as long as it's for someone else, regardless of how much additional effort maybe that that takes, mm-hmm. it's the other focus per part of it that, that matters. Does mm-hmm. that, that, that seems right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're right. In, the, in that particular study, I don't think we could drill down on that question. But I, in subsequent studies, we've been able to really um, to, to narrow to make the purchases across conditions um, almost identical. It's the exact same content. It's the exact same decision. The 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 main key distinction is who is the ultimate beneficiary of these items. Um, and even still, these emotional benefits pan out in a manner that is consistent with the original study. So when you extended this paradigm mm-hmm. beyond Canada, yeah. how, how, were there challenges in translating this task or sort of how, in what, in what ways did this study look the same versus different when you went into the field in other places? Yeah, th- that's an interesting question because um, naively we thought that this initial design could really um, scale up and scale out, but it, I, I, we started to realize the complications um, in, in some interesting ways that like people across cultures spend their money in, in, um, in helping themselves and in others in very different ways. Like, for instance, when we started conducting research in Africa to understand how people spend their money, um, there was a ton of anecdotal report. And in some of our recollection studies, people were buying airtime. And we had no idea what that was. Um, but this was, at its, you know, it's it's probably still a very popular occurrence, I imagine. I don't know for sure. Um, but people were buying cell phone minutes. And that's like what they could give easily as a gift. And that's something that was really uh, meaningful and important to themselves. And so we started to quickly notice that our original paradigm with these very flexible um, parameters was not going to was not going to be as worthwhile. And so um, as we started to kind of build this line of work, we started and, and, and be mindful of alternative explanations that, you know, came to mind after the paper was published. Um, we started thinking about better, tighter, more rigorous designs that we, we thought would be more appropriate. And I think one of the paradigms that's really been helpful for us over the past several years and is what I call our goodie bag paradigm. And this is basically um, a design where people complete a, a simple baseline questionnaire um, that re- in which they report their baseline happiness. But it also... Um, encourages people to take ownership of a financial endowment or a windfall that comes soon after. And this windfall isn't large. Usually it's in the ballpark of approximately $3 Canadian. It's not like a substantial amount of money, Um, but people sign for the money and they take ownership of it. And then we tell them, you know, with this $3, you can choose to make a purchase that's available to you at this discounted price. And it's a goodie bag and you can fill it with either two chocolates, two juice boxes, or a mix of each. Um, And there's an option to opt out and claim the cash value for yourself. 
people can always exercise this option, but very few do because we kind of scaffold this choice to suggest that if, if you are going to claim the cash, you'd have to pick it up in several months time. And so it's not like you can walk out with this in your pocket now. Um, and as so everybody's got these, these same options, um, but people are critically randomly assigned to one of two conditions. In one condition, the goodie bag is for them and themselves at the end of the study. And in the other condition, people are uh, randomly assigned to the pro-social condition where the goodie bag is going to be donated to a sick child at a local children's hospital. And this is usually a a, a pretty satisfactory and understandable target. Um, lo and behold, almost overwhelmingly, everybody picks, uh, they're not going to come back in a few months to collect this $2, $3. Um, and so what they do is they buy a goodie bag, either for themselves or for someone else. They make their selection on a purchase card. Um, they take this purchase card over to a research assistant who is unaware of what condition they're in. The research assistant packages the goodie bag in front of them so people know that this is real, not a hypothetical item that they are buying. The goodie bag is set aside till the conclusion of the experiment. And then um, the participant returns, they, they receive a thank you note that just reinforces their condition assignment. Thank you for purchasing the goodie bag. It, it'll be available for pickup at the end of the study if they're in the personal condition or donated to Children's Hospital if they're in the pro-social spending condition. And then they go sit down and complete the post-spending measures. Um, and usually what we find is, is that, again, people randomly assigned to spend money on others. Uh, are significantly happier than people who spend on themselves. This time, um, of course, the purchase is standardized, and so alternative explanations about the content of the purchase don't really pan out for for understanding um, alternative courses of why someone might be happy. But also the study um, includes many controls to try to remove any opportunity for social connection or social praise um, or potential reciprocity that might occur when we give in, in normal ways <laughs> to other people. Um, so if I give you a gift, uh, you, you might say thank you, it might build a friendship, I might expect something from you in return. And here, a lot of those sources um, that are important for everyday giving are, are short-circuited, which allows us to really um, zero in on the emotional rewards of giving in and of itself. And this is a, a paradigm that is you can pick it up and put it in different contexts it seems like that's what the the value of it is yeah yeah um most places have some vulnerable population group i mean we've we've used this paradigm in um certainly in vancouver we've used it in south africa and in several other places and so um it's easily adaptable for for that purpose and it's also like i said got a lot of these bells and whistles to control for alternative explanations and and you did this is I was just so impressed that you picked this up. I don't I forget if it was the goodie bag or something else in like a very remote part of the world. Yes, that was in Vanuatu. How, so how did how did that happen? And, and yeah, <laughs> how did you pull that off? Uh, well, so I was lucky enough to be hired uh, alongside a friend and colleague of mine, Tanya Brush, who is a cross cultural developmental psychologist. And so when we both started here in the same year at Simon Fraser University in Canada, we we got along really, really well. And I was really impressed at the cross-cultural work she was doing. And she was setting up a field site in Vanuatu. And um, after you know examining this question uh, quite a bit already, I, I was still really interested. You know, we had gone out of our way to try to recruit samples from rich and poor nations around the world. But, you know, even still, I thought a, a critic could say that, you know, you've been studying um, underprivileged students or low-income students in certain places around the world. But even, you know, by, by 
global standards, they're relatively uh, not that well off, but by national standards, they are well well off in the, if, if they're able to attend a local university. That's not something most people around the world are able to be able to do. Um, and so I was talking with Tanya and we secured this small grant for me to be able to fly to her field site with her. Well, I think she was maybe five or six months pregnant and couldn't take <laughs> malaria medication. Um, and so it was a pretty risky trip for her. And so Anyway, look, she got sick on the trip. Anyway, she dropped me off in this like remote village in Vanuatu where I stayed for three weeks. And so she introduced me to the chief and kind of said, I got to get out of here. I can't take I can't take medication. I can't stay safe. And and um, so she left me in the village in, in, in a very nice like They were lovely. And I had a wonderful time. But um, it was uh, it was a fun exercise. I, I knew it was going to be hard work, but I don't think I had fully anticipated um the challenges and rewards of cross-cultural work. But um, it was there that we we adapted this paradigm. For, for various reasons, we had to loosen a lot of our very stringent controls, um, in part because I, there were only two women in the village who spoke English. Um, and so we wanted to run this in the mother tongue language. And so I had to rely very much on these two women for back translations and translations to be able to make it work. But also many adults in the village were illiterate they could not read and so um for all the bells and whistles that we had built into this in vancouver and canada and elsewhere to 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 reduce these um social appraisal concerns we had to allow this study to run with in-person dialogue there where someone else was going to know of your choice um because there was no way around it um but lo and behold there um in the village of probably about 100 people we were able to recruit 26 adults um we rented out one of the villagers huts and i was kind of off on the side, people were very skeptical when I was in the room. And so Lija, one of the local women, ran the experiment for me. And um, we had to make some adaptations. We used um, not chocolate bars and juice boxes, but candies that I was able to buy in Port Vila on my way into this remote village. And um, we set out... Um, I have some pictures uh, that are really jogging my memory, but we we set out a mat in the middle of the floor. We put three bowls to represent the three options. People were able to take these choices right then and there. Many people were so excited to eat the foods they had never really seen before, ate them right then and there in the personal condition and the pro-social spending condition. um, There was no local children's hospital that we could donate to, but people were were asked to go share these with friends and family and not eat them themselves. And again, rather than rely on like long validated um, happiness report measures, people simply pointed at a 10 rung ladder and indicated how happy they were feeling in the moment on several positive emotion variables. And so you're finding that in this context, when people still are making choices that are going to give to others and not benefit themselves, that's when people reported the most happiness yes. on the letter. Yeah, very much so. And and yeah, and just uh, of interest was just overwhelmingly these individuals there were just so happy on this 10 point ladder. You might think that people living in these remote villages with very little access to healthcare, no running water, no electricity, um, they were on average somewhere in the high eights or nines out of a 10 point scale. Um, and it was just, you, you know, we, we come in with some of our Western conceptualizations of what we might need to make us happy. Um, and here these individuals were living in a beautiful natural place surrounded by friends and family. Um, their lack of financial resources didn't seem to matter so much um, because they had these close tight knit communities. So I think that paper came out in 2015. Is that right? Yes. Was, when did you go? When was when did it actually happen? Probably 2013. Okay. Yeah, it it was a long time. I mean, it it was a long, the the trip itself was three weeks, but 
the preparing for it, we, I mean, we had weekly meetings for about a year before we went. Um, and when we came back, it was, I mean, the analyses were not hard to run, but it ended up, we, we also included the child data in that paper too. So I was lucky to be able to try a, a version of our, our goodie, our giving paradigm with kids there too. Were there, um, did you do any, I mean, you you spend all that time and energy going there. Were there other tasks that you ran while you were there? Or really it was, it all hinged on this one thing? Well, it, it was two experiments primarily. So it was the one with the adults and the one with the kids. Um, and it, you know, three weeks there sounds like, you know, a lot of time to run 26 individuals and well, 26 adults and 20 kids. Um, but the whole first week was really translations, back translations, working with like the two women who could understand English to make sure that our, to make sure that our designs were culturally appropriate and not, um, not scary, not, you know, for instance, um, the, the, the experiment we did with kids, it uses puppets. And I had originally, I brought three, thank goodness. Um, but one was a dog. And I thought, you know, most, most people everywhere like dogs, right? But dogs had a very nasty connotation there. Um, they were dirty and not well kept and and like people would shoot them out of their homes. And sometimes, you know, it, it wasn't a desirable animal to interact with. And so when the when the main focal design was focused on a dog, we had to very much redesign and, and, and run with it. And so it, it took probably about two weeks to run the kids study and one week to run the adult studies is how time was tight. Wow, man. Uh, so even to push it further, right? Yeah. So we're, you're exploring the bounds of all of this and you mentioned kids. Uh, I watched the video from, oh. there was the link to the video and yeah. it was like, yeah, this just like enjoyment of like, oh, this monkey is eating the thing that I gave it. Mm -hmm. And this sort of like, I don't really care if, uh, if you just gave it something. So could you just to kind of round it all out, mm -hmm. <laughs> describe an additional challenge of translating this paradigm to kids um, and how can we know that kids also gain this kind of satisfaction from giving to others? Sure. So, I, yeah, I was very interested in, in thinking about whether it's not just um, full-grown adults, but maybe maybe younger humans that also feel good about giving. Um, and the, the at the, around the time I was very interested in this question, there was new emerging research kind of suggesting that kids kids engage in generous acts very early in life. And, and I was thinking there were various reasons for that. But one possibility could be that kids like adults feel good about giving. And so working with Kylie Hamlin and Liz Dunn, we designed this experiment, uh, this experimental procedure where kids who were 22 months came into the lab with their parent, um, And they, they did a little warm up round where they learned that, you know, puppets like eating treats and um, and once they kind of got the idea that puppets like humans, like eating yummy treats, we took them into a new lab room and um, they were introduced to a puppet named Monkey who liked eating treats. And then both the child uh, and, and the puppet were given a bowl and the child was given eight edible treats, like things that um, we often find tasty, like goldfish crackers or Teddy Graham crackers, things that young kids enjoy. And then over the course of several minutes, um, they were asked to participate in three key phases that came in counterbalanced order. So in one phase, the kids were asked to watch as the experimenter gave a treat to the puppet. 
And in one phase, they were asked to um, give one of the experimenters treats to the puppet. And in one phase, they were asked to give one of their own treats to the puppet. And every time Monkey ate, every time he received a treat, he ate it in a very loud and excitable fashion. Um, and we used, we thought this was really clever at the time. We, we used this big bowl that had a false bottom corner. And so every time Monkey put his face down in the bowl, we, he used his nose to push the treat through the hole. And so when he lifted his head, the treats disappeared. And lo and behold, it was pretty convincing to the kids. Um, and um, so we wanted to see not just whether kids would do this, but how it made them feel. And so we had a video camera in the far corner of the room, just kind of capturing this exchange. And when all the data were collected, we coded the children's facial expressions on a seven point happiness scale. And just to see if we could track emotion and we could, and um, that allowed us to compare how, how much kids were smiling as they engaged in these various actions. And as you alluded to, um, we found that kids smiled more when giving treats away to the puppet than when receiving these eight edible treats themselves. And what we were most excited about was that kids seemed to smile the most when giving their own treat to the same puppet who responded in the exact same way than when they were giving an identical treat that didn't belong to them, uh, which we interpreted to suggest or at least be consistent with the possibility that giving might be especially rewarding when it's costly. So all of this paints a very clear picture that giving to someone else uh, increases well-being, makes people happier than using those same resources on yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's it's happening all over at different developmental times in, in people's lives. And so my question is, why? What what is it? What is it actually about this that is so potent? Like I, I think it's undeniable at this point that that it is a powerful cue or a powerful influence on happiness. But why? Why why should it be? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. While we've had a lot of um, I would say luck. I, well, we've spent invested a lot of time and thinking and energy and resources into trying to understand like what is the magical ingredient. We've had a lot more. Um, we've been able to drive a lot more insight about what are the conditions under which this effect is larger and smaller. I can speak to that if you want, but we haven't really nailed down a central mechanism. In fact, one of the key collaborators on a lot of this work, Mike Norton, seems to think that there might not be some um, internal mechanism in our heads that that kind of um, is the magic ingredient. I, I, we think that it has a lot to do with, you know, humans are very social creatures, we rely on other people. And this is like a very key, clear and key way that we, we facilitate and kind of build these social connections with others is to to engage in giving and sometimes even costly giving to, to reflect that. Um, but the fact that we see this, you know, quite early on in life, and, and with some pretty knee jerk reactions, um, seems to suggest that I don't I don't know if there's like a key psychological mechanism that mediates this relationship. Um, but we have we, we have had better insight into deciphering when the relationship is larger versus smaller. And if we if we know some of the times where it goes away, where people no longer get that boost, then it may give us some clues. So what are some of the things that render this pro-social giving kind of irrelevant to people? Yeah, being? that's a great question. So I it's so um, the way we've described it so far is it, it, cut, it aligns very nicely with self-determination theory needs. Um, so the first is this sense of autonomy, this feeling of volition. So if people give in ways that are very forced or required, that mm -hmm. seems to really rob the emotional benefits. So if I, you know, if I give you $5 and say, go drop that off in that donation bucket there, you're not going to feel particularly good about <laughs> that. Um, and lo and behold, um, Netta Weinstein and Rich Ryan have a really nice JPSP paper showing this effect pretty much when, when volition goes away, so too do 
do the emotional rewards of giving. Mm-hmm. Um, another is competence. So this, and we've often thought about that as like having a positive impact on others. And so usually you can really dial up the emotional rewards of giving by emphasizing the degree to which your gift has had a positive impact on others. Um, and, and similarly, you could decrease or detract the emotional rewards by really making it bland, obtuse, um, or really pallid. Um, so, you know, some charities, I think some charities do a better job of this and some have um, a better stance to do so where they can make very clear declarations about how your dollars are going to be helping other people. Um, and some charities that, you know, don't have that luxury. For, we ran one experiment in which we asked students to give money to either UNICEF, which is this broad organization from the United Nations that helps children in need, the United Nations um, International Children's Emergency Fund, and Spread the Net, which is almost a subsidiary that stops the spread of malaria through Africa and has a very clear declarative every $10 donated buys a bed net to stop the spread of malaria. Donation rates were no different across conditions, but what did differ was the emotional rewards of giving. When people were giving to this very clear, obvious high impact charity, um, the the more they gave, the happier they reported feeling. Uh, Meanwhile, that relationship did not exist in the UNICEF condition. So impact seems to also be key. And third, and probably most critically, I think is the social relational aspect. Um, And so when people give in socially connected ways, you can really amp up the emotional rewards. And when people give in very um, disconnected ways, you can pull that away. I, I want to be mindful of your time, I, and we'll talk about gifts in a second. Sure. Um, I have one more question about the pro-social thing, though, sure. uh, if, that, if that's fine with you. Yeah. The, so the question is, to what extent is this specifically about giving or spending? You all sort of very clearly demarcate this as pro-social spending in some mm-hmm. uh, ways that you talk about it. But I wonder if I help someone across the street. I mean, pro-sociality can take lots of different forms. Is this something specific about spending and giving, or is this really one manifestation of being pro-social and helpful makes you feel better about yourself? Yeah, thank you for asking that question, because I'm interested in pro-sociality more broadly. And I think, you know, I kind of, with Liz, we stumbled upon this question of of the financial generosity early on. She was interested in the financial side, and I was really interested in the um, pro-social side, and and it it made a lot of sense. And you know, looking back, it was a very lucky uh, stumbling because it's a lot easier to give people money to give away. I can't, um, it's it's much more challenging to give people time to give away. I can't force people to give blood. Um, you know, all these other costly personal resources that we might think of as are, that are manifestations or instanti- instantiations of generosity um, are a little harder to track and harder to manipulate in, in experimental designs. Um, but I, I certainly do think that financial generosity is one form and fashion of the ways and, and often the costly ways in which we um, help other people. The one study, I mean, m- most of my work is focused on pro-social spending, but the kids' work that we talked about a few minutes ago looks at um, food sharing, which I actually think is probably one of um, the the earliest forms of generosity that may have emerged among humans. Um, but, I, but I think the evidence is pretty paints a pretty consistent picture across many versions and many facets of generosity. Ashley Willens and I just wrote um, a a paper along these lines. I mean, I think the evidence for donating one's time and donating one's money is there's certainly the largest literatures these days. um, But I think donating food, donating advice, donating blood, organs, etc. Also, um, the evidence aligns. It's, It's not 
not nearly as large or, or, or consistent, um, but by and large, I, th I think the general notion is that um, generosity is is positively associated with and causally um, implicated in, in increasing well-being. Hmm. Yeah, to the point about the the moderators, mm -hmm. these uh, the, the the commonality seems to be that I'm incurring a cost to help you. Mm -hmm. The part where you said giving advice is the one that seems maybe least amenable to that. But I mm -hmm. kind of wonder if I'm being helpful totally by accident. And yes, I am causally responsible for your gain in uh, safety or pleasure or whatever, mm -hmm. but I may not have even known that I did it or it, I, it really, I am no worse off as a result. Mm -hmm. Does that operate in the same way? Or is it really like I'm losing to give something to you and that's the thing that I like. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because in some of the experiments that we we kind of pull upon for the advice giving, which I think uh, I, I think are probably the loosest connections. So I appreciate you interrogating this assumption. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it may be more of a stretch. Uh, uh, people who do give advice are better off in in many ways, not always emotional well being. Um, part of the reason might be that not everybody knows whether their advice has been effective, which circles back to the impact point. Um, but I, it might also matter, you know, there isn't an inherent cost in giving advice other than perhaps your time. Um, if people think that the world is zero sum and me giving you advice, you know, if, if, if I give you feedback on your paper and it's more likely to be published and mine isn't, then maybe I do feel like it's costly advice, but I don't, I, I'd like to think people, most people don't see the world that way. And so um, that, that might also be one of the reasons that um, that link is perhaps the weakest. Mind you, to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know if anybody has really offered a, like a very precise specific test of that question yet. And so I think it remains yet to, I, I don't think, um, the evidence is missing because it, it's been tested and not shown. I think it's it's more that nobody has has most clearly identified that as a form of um, prosocial um, currency that could be then given away. Okay, let's talk about gifts. Okay. Um, <laughs> so one one clear connection then is you know prosocial spending is what gifts are, and mm -hmm. gifts are just kind of this prescribed version of prosocial spending that we all kind of just have to do. Mm -hmm. um, and one implication would be that gifts, giving gifts, would make us happier. But what's interesting is the work you've done specifically on gift giving doesn't look at well being. I don't think as the outcome, but like relationship kinds yeah. of outcomes um so i'm wondering in particular that kind of that first one about the giver focused versus recipient focus mm -hmm. could you give an overview of i mean one where that idea came from was there some sort of seed to that 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 is compelling and then also what, what do you find that people are wrong about their preferences uh in ways that that affect their relationships yeah, so this this project with Lauren Human, I actually don't remember like where it grew from. I think I included one question in a large survey where I was just kind of intrigued about what people's intuitions about the best form of gifts. Um, and I, I had, I, I wish I had a better backstory for this, but I, I don't. And so I, <laughs> we, we, I, you know, I, I was maybe, I don't, it could have been like out of a discussion with someone where I kind of just like thought this was of, of interest and included a dichotomous question about what kind of gifts do you think are best to give uh, other people, those that reflect you and your interests or those that reflect the, the, the receiver and their interests. And lo and behold, we found um, in this very initial 
data set that there just seemed to be an overwhelming preference. Like, oh, overwhelming, I don't even think captures it. It was just a whopping um, lean towards the majority of the sample thinking that, of course, when you give gifts, you give gifts that reflect the recipient. This is what you do. And so I, I contacted Lauren and I just, I knew she had been really interested in kind of self-disclosures and how to, what a good listener, what a good um someone who's very good at self-disclosure. I, I thought this was really interesting and well aligned with her interests. And so um, this project just took off and we wanted to understand what, what are the relational consequences of giving these di very different types of gifts, gifts that reflect you or gifts that as the giver or gifts that reflect the recipient and um, what that whether that aligns with people's intuitions. And across a series of studies, in every study, we found the exact same pattern whereby people kept telling us over and over again, no, obviously you give gifts that reflect the recipient. That is the proper nice thing to do. And, and people would tell us like, that's what I did when I gave the last gift. And when I got a gift, that's the kind of last gift I got. It was reflective of me as the recipient. Like in every way we could ask the question, people hands down said, no, gifts should be given that reflect the recipient. But then we started to kind of toy with which types of gifts had the best relational outcomes. And across several different domains, um, we found that lo and behold, the better course of action, or at least the, the more preferential outcomes where people would feel closer to the other person on the other side uh, were in instances in which they gave gifts that reflected the giver. Um, so for instance, I remember this study quite clearly. We recruited people at the mall around Mother's Day, <laughs> and we told them that we were going to buy their card in the local Hallmark or card shop or whatever it was. And um, we said, you go in, you could go in and pick whichever one it is, but we randomly assigned them to either buy a card that reflected them as the giver or the recipient, their their mother or mother figure, and we we let them come, you know, write the card and and um, tell us how they uh, how how they thought it would go, and we followed up with them after Mother's Day, and what we found was consistent, what was inconsistent with people's self-reported perceptions or attitudes and predictions in advance, uh, but that people who were randomly assigned to give a gift or a card that reflected who they were made them feel closer, and in a final study we got to look at this from also the recipient's perspective. And so we recruited pairs of individuals to come into the lab. They were randomly assigned to either the giver or recipient role. And the giver was randomly assigned to either give a, a giver-centric gift or a recipient-centric gift. And so they went on iTunes and bought a song that either reflected who they were or who the recipient was primarily. Um, and then they sent it via email to the other participant in the other room. And the recipients this time reported that they felt closer when they were given a giver-focused gift than a recipient focus gift. In that one study, the givers didn't feel closer, <laughs> but, in, but in every other study where we focused on the givers, they did. Um, and so it kind of just presented some intriguing insight into, you know, when it comes to gift giving, like many other things in life, we all of our intuitions don't pan out. Um, this seemed to be one context in which people's intuitions, um, you know, we probably all know it's good to give gifts to a certain extent, but um, when it comes to the specificity of what type of gift to give, we might lean towards reflecting the recipient when in fact we'd be better off kind of sharing a little bit of intimacy and, and um, detail about who we are in the gifts that we give. And just to clarify, when you say giver focused or oriented gifts versus recipient oriented gifts, yeah. what, what exactly do you mean? So again, um, so we asked people to, the distinction, I, the distinction, um, I'm trying to think about what it, I don't remember the exact words that we gave people, but it was something along the lines of in the giver-centric gift, it was a gift that kind of reflects your personality, your interests, your passions, something about you as the person who is 
offering the gift. Meanwhile, the recipient-focused gifts were often identified or described as um, gifts that reflect the recipient's personality, passions, interests, um, something that reflects the person that you're giving to. Just as a, as a by way of wrapping up and just to mm-hmm. kind of distill everything down, mm-hmm. if you were to give advice about gift giving or being uh, where to spend your money, sort of, this is sort of the take home moment part of things, right? If, okay. Like if you were to give advice to people based on your research, what kind of advice would you give? I would recommend that people, I I think in large part, most people have this general intuitive sense that being kind to others is the right thing to do and a positive thing to do. But I think when push comes to shove and what we've seen in several of of our experiments is that when we when we show people dollar signs and when we give them the choice in the here and now, they they quickly default to these selfish preferences whereby they think they will be happier or they choose to um, invest in themselves. And what I think our research has shown time and time again over the past decade or so is that, you know, looking in rich and poor countries across the age spectrum and various personal histories, um, most people are in fact quite, quite a bit happier when they spend on others than on themselves. You know, it's interesting <laughs> The contrast between that and the gift giving study saying, give something that is self-focused. <laughs> there is a little bit of like, people people want to be selfish, but you shouldn't be, except when you're being pro-social, then be selfish <laughs> in how you be. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one way we came to understand that, and I, you know, I, I, Lauren and I had some long conversations about this, and this is where we landed. But I, I you know, honestly, that project was like a one-off and not something I've given as much thought to as, as the other line of work. Um, but we thought one of the reasons that um, giver-centric gifts might be lead to greater senses of intimacy than than these recipient-centric gifts is that, you know, it can be risky when you give a recipient-centric gift because you can miss, right? Like if if I try to give my partner what I think is like his new favorite sports jersey or whatever, and I pick the wrong person, it's it, it can very quickly reveal that I wasn't paying attention, <laughs> right? Uh, meanwhile, if I give something that is reflective of me, or and many of the times that, you know, we talk about this a bit in the paper, but on some occasions when people gave things that were of themselves, they, they could often be um, memories of times that were together. Like there was a time where I really shared a lot of myself. And so we shared an experience. Um, like people describe some very beautiful things. Like I remember one person who drove cross country with like a six pack of beer to, you know, from I think New York to California to to, to share like a, an amazing what personal experience. But, but all this to say that I, I think, um, you know, when in doubt, sharing a bit of yourself is probably a much safer bet than trying to hit the mark on a, on a recipient centric gift that, that could miss. It could, like I said, quite easily reveal that you don't know that person as well as they, they might hope you do. Um, and so it allows for, it, yeah, it, I think there's good reason to think that um, people really like sharing things about themselves. So perhaps that's not surprising that the givers really enjoy that and feel good about it. And, and I feel that is a sense of intimacy building. Um, but I think recipients, it, it, it's a lot less threatening than if, if someone gets your preferences wrong. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. This was all very cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Opinion Science. First episode of the year in the books. If you've been supporting the show from the beginning, thank you for ringing in a new year with me. And if you're new, you can still check out all the previous episodes, including last week's Best Of. 
Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, listen to past episodes at opinionsciencepodcast.com, and thank you for being here. And thanks to Lara Acknan for chatting. Her work is very neat, and you can find out more about it by clicking on the links in the show notes. You'll also find links to her website and, and all that other fun stuff. Okie doke. That's it from me. See you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science 2021. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.